Humanitarian Engineering Podcast. Eradicating extreme poverty for all people everywhere by 2030 is a pivotal goal of the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Extreme poverty, defined as surviving on less than $2 per person per day, measured at 2017 based on purchasing power parity, has witnessed remap- remarkable declines over recent decades. Even prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, the momentum of poverty reduction was slowing down. By the end of 2022, now casting suggested that 8.4% of the world's population, or as many as 670 million people, could still be li- living in extreme poverty. This setback effectively erased approximately three years of progress in poverty elevation. With this statement from United Nations, we would like to welcome you to the special episode of the Humanitarian Engineering Podcast on SDG 1, No Poverty. Today we will provide some insight on targets of SDG number one, no poverty, possible actions and intervention, and we will reflect on the meaning of living in extreme poverty. Welcome everybody also from my side. Um, let me start maybe by saying that I've also recently um, read the SDG one report, so the progress report the UN always publishes every year um, about the progress they make on the SDGs. Um, And I think what is remarkable to say, or what struck me when I read the report about uh, no f- SDG 1, No Poverty, is that none of the targets are actually on track. And I think that's that's quite sad, to say the least. And then, for example, what they mentioned is that they think um, an estimated 7% of the global population, which I think by 2030 should be around 575 million people, could still be living in extreme poverty, which, of course, yeah... It's an insanely amount of people. Yeah, maybe let me add to that because uh, I also saw in the report that, uh, well, with the current trends, only one third of the countries will have halved their national poverty rates by 2030, which is another evidence of uh, such a slow progress, which is indeed striking. Yeah, and also maybe sad to note also from the report, uh, it also mentions uh, for target three, for example, that by 2030, only 47% of the global population was effectively covered by at least one social protection cash benefit, which I think is really sad. And just to add on, on top of that, in 2021 data for 100 countries showed that the global average proportion of total government spending on essential service is approximately 53%, with an overall average of 62% for adon- advanced economies and 44% for emerging market and developing economies. And I think altogether those numbers are um, really, really uh, uh, difficult to believe. Yeah. yeah, we agree, yeah. Yeah, and then maybe also to um, uh, to capture, you, uh, it's also nice that uh, the reader can note that uh, the report also mentions that poverty has many dimensions and uh, its causes would include uh, uh, varied uh, possibilities, including unemployment, social exclusion, and high vulnerability of certain populations to disasters, diseases, and other phenomena which prevents them from being productive. Yeah, I think that's uh, also very sad indeed. And I think maybe um, we should talk about these causes in more detail now in the second part.
Okay, now in the second part of this uh, podcast, we want to talk about the actions that the UN defined, um, what we can actually do about um, yeah, working against or elevating poverty. Um, well, I would start with the first um, action point that the UN defined. And they basically say, a search in action and investment to enhance economic opportunities, improve education and extend social protection to all, particularly the most excluded, is crucial to delivering on the central commitment to end poverty and leave no one behind. Well, if I read that, or when I read this statement, I directly had to think of our Edubox initiative. Well, the Edubox is basically a mobile classroom and it's meant to um, well, teach provide skills. Provide skills and teach uh, underserved communities, um, like for example, refugees, um, in um, yeah, in skills that they need uh, for the job market. Um, yeah, of course. I mean, that is of course directly contributing to improving education for um, the the people that are mo most excluded. Um, refugees are definitely also socially excluded <laughs> if they um, had to leave their own home country and they are not having all the rights, of course, in the new in the new country they live in. Um, and of course, it also helps them to essentially. Yeah, enhance their economic opportunities because if you learn skills um, which you need for the job market, that also gives you better opportunities again. So yeah, what came to my mind was directly the Edubox initiative. Yeah, that, that's that's true. But I also do believe the Edubox is contributing a lot to SDG number four. That is the quality of education. So I, at least uh, from my side, I can see a link between the SDG number one that we are talking about today and SDG number four. That is on education and provide equal access to education. Yeah, uh, and maybe to jump in, eh? so uh, the World Bank also presents a very interesting report. So they did an analysis of uh, engineering programs in uh, developing countries, so thinking about the Global South. And one interesting fact they uh, pointed was uh, the quality of education, especially in terms of access to uh, laboratory facilities. And uh, we were thinking together with colleagues and also students how we can um, try to retrofit the EduBox into uh, a form of a learning factory, which can be used for education purposes. And uh, we've had an interesting project together with uh, our students to think about um, a learning concept, which students can use the EduBox as a facility to learn design and manufacturing. So in this case, uh, one of the ideas they came up with is uh, they thought about uh, including uh, advanced manufacturing equipment, so things, uh, facilities which are common, for instance, for additive manufacturing or injection molding, whereby students can learn design skills, but at the same time, they can learn uh, manufacturing skills and they can connect this well with engineering education uh, in developing ma country contexts. I'm actually wondering, are there any learning factories already implemented? Yeah, that's an interesting fact, and I think uh, maybe Alberto would say something about it. Because yeah, uh, actually the um, the idea uh, is not totally new. The learning factor is a concept that uh, has been already investigated, especially in uh, let's say countries with a more advanced economy. But the interesting part is that now we see the learning factories can have quite a huge impact also for. Um, countries and communities struggle uh, with, for example, industri industrialization level and uh, transfer the uh, skills and um, and education to professionals as well. Yeah, 
And just even to give a very concrete example on a project, uh, we are working together with Alberto. So think about uh, plastic waste. So how can, for instance, communities harness uh, plastic waste as a resource to pro- produce uh, uh, products that are usable? So, f- for instance, there are projects in Uganda where we have entrepreneurs who are converting this plastic waste into uh, bricks for pavements. Uh, so they're using uh, injection molding and plastic extrusion as a method. And this fits quite well with the Edubox initiative because some of this equipment can be retrofitted uh, to fit uh, a shipping container environment which can be distributed into different uh, parts of uh, the well, uh, communities whereby they can produce uh, usable uh, items that can also enhance their economic well-being. Yeah, and also I think involve the community in also the reuse of um, plastic waste and not only, let's say, move the plastic waste to a plant for treatment and and further processes, but also include the communities on the value chain of recycling plastic. I think that's very much related to the second reaction that the UN is suggesting, right? Yeah, that, that's that's very true, Nikki. Um, uh, another, let's say, possible uh, point that the UN is suggesting to work on is the fact that p- the pure and the vulnerable have need to have equal rights to economic resources, uh, as well as access to basic service. They need to have ownership and control over the land and other forms of property um, in order to... Um, um, advance their living condition and it includes also microfinance projects. And uh, if you think about this statement uh, very keenly, it also has a linkage to uh, appropriate technologies because uh, technology is known to be uh, one specific intervention that can have a huge impact on communities and especially if the process of uh, co-designing these technologies also involves communities. So I was thinking along uh, projects that we are also working together as a, a subgroup on humanitarian engineering. So thinking about, for instance, working with communities to design rope pumps, which can be used to uh, extract water from uh, yeah, shallow wells. But also ideas uh, that we are working with our mechanical engineering students on um, swivel design. So this is essentially a device that can be used to drill shallow wells, which uh, addresses cost uh, that is normally involved uh, in terms of hiring very expensive uh, drilling rigs uh, by communities. So it's uh, quite a cheap and appropriate device which you can use a normal hand electric drill and you can be able to drill shallow wells up to 30 meters. And in this case, uh, essentially, you're able to empower the community in a sense that they can also use it as an entrepreneurship model to uplift uh, their well-being, but also access vital water for their day-to-day use. Yeah, but I, I've also, uh, and we also discussed in a previous episode of the podcast, that uh, basically climate change, and we interview uh, in the last episode the director of the uh, Climate Change Center here at the University, Cheryl de Burr, about the fact that climate change is affecting um, most the vulnerable communities, right, Nikki? Yeah, that's true, and I think that makes a very nice link to the AgriBox that we've been, we've been working on in the past, uh, past a couple of months or even in the past year, which is actually, well, to me, it seems like another tool that is uh, that is used as a reaction to another UN statement or UN, uh, yeah, 
suggestion, which is about building uh, resilience of the poor, because they have to, indeed, as Alberto said, they have to deal with the effects of uh, climate change. So maybe I think, Alberto, you might be the best one to say something more about Agribox or Peter. Yeah, I think that uh, we mentioned in uh, one of the pre- previous episodes about the Agribox is a sort of uh, um, second iteration of the Edbox project, more tailored for agricultural studies. So how to um, present and propose new form of uh, um, agricultural methods and technology in order to, to be more resilient to climate change. Yeah. yeah, and indeed it fits very well to um, uh, an education model because uh, the idea for the Agribox is um, provides a very nice platform so yeah, whereby uh, communities can learn different agricultural methods. So think about uh, appropriate uh, technologies on hydroponics, for instance, which could be very relevant for urban farming whereby these constraints on space and this can also linked to, for instance, communities thinking on how they can be able to smartly reuse water or capture rainwater. And in that case, for instance, in an urban setting can also alleviate challenges on accessing uh, vital vegetables or nutrients that they can be able to, uh, yeah, they would otherwise have to uh, either grow or maybe completely not accessible. So if you look at it in this form as a a training model, so in terms of uh, uh, communities learning different agricultural methods, but also as an entrepreneurship model. In this instance, uh, it can also be used as a, a laboratory for growing food crops. So in this case, uh, we see it uh, well as a vital intervention uh, towards targeting uh, the needs of the communities and in essence, in a small way, contributing to alleviating yeah, poverty for especially the most vulnerable uh, uh, persons in the community. Well, based on what you are saying right now, I can see clear a connection between the SDG 1, no poverty, and SDG 2, zero hunger, but also the SDG 4, quality education. So I think it clearly covers all the work that we are doing. But I was wondering what it actually means to live with less than $2 per day. I mean, everything needs to be included in this number. Food, water, sheltering, health, education. Yeah, 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 right. I mean, I'm, I was recently watching a doc- documentary about it, actually. And there they explored the dimensions of poverty. So how it is to live, well, in extreme poverty, so having less than $2 a day. And for example, they gave the example that someone was living in a remote village, um, and then, of course, the first basic need that you have is maybe food. So you cultivate maybe your own small fields and the rest that you have over that you don't need, you sell at the market um, to maybe also buy some other food. So you have a bit more nutritious diet, but in the end, it comes down to eating beans and rice, which, of course, is not a very nutritious diet uh, if, you have, if you eat that every day <coughs> and also your children. And then, of course, you also, um, if you, for example, have a flooding and uh, all your harvest is gone, then, yeah, what do you do? You don't fall back on anything. And similarly, another need that we have is, of course, clean water. They gave the example that it's not like how we have it, like it just comes out of the tap. But you basically have to go two kilometers somewhere to the next river to collect it. And then it's, of course, also not necessarily clean. And if it's not clean, then it can also lead to health issues, some diseases, worms whatever 
Um, but yeah, going going to the doctor is also not really an option because you don't have the money to pay the doctor. Similarly, of course, you also need to pay for shelter. Um, and generally, I mean, also improving your economic situation is very, very hard because you don't have uh, the financial means to, for example, invest in more land or yeah, more crops and those kind of things. So yeah, you kind of it's also very hard to get out of the situation. And then the the last thing thing they actually explored was education. Um, and also there, of course, if even if education would be free in some of the countries, um, you still have to buy school books and those kind of things, and that also costs money. And then, well, kids could also work and help on the field. <laughs> Which is, of course, then a vicious cycle in itself if they don't uh, get a proper education to better their life. Um, so I think living on $2 or below $2 a day is very, very challenging. And I don't think that I can actually well, imagine how that would be. But I have a question because m my inside engineer um, is asking me if we can do something through technology to alleviate this problem. Indeed. So if you think about uh, extreme poverty, so I think what comes into mind is how can you empower, empower these communities? And uh, I think it's known that technology can play a role. So if you look at um, uh, communities that, for instance, the example Nina gave, uh, they have difficulties uh, accessing nutrition, nutritious food. So in this, technology can play a role. For instance, in the, in the instance, these communities are aware of uh, what could be technologies they could deploy for uh, an urban farming context, for example, and how the communities can be empowered to use local skills and local resources to build appropriate technologies for that. And that's why, as a group, uh, we try to emphasize the terminology appropriate, meaning that it should fit the context of uh, the community and rather than uh, developing these technologies for them, empowering them that uh, they can be able to also in a way contribute towards uh, developing and having ownership of whatever technologies they are able to come up with to alleviate their specific situation. Well, but I think that also brings quite some challenges like First of all, I'm thinking about technology acceptance or ownership of the technologies because I've seen a couple of TED Talks where they were talking about the fact that the technologies were in place, but they were not being used because nobody felt to be the owner of the technology. They didn't accept the technology. So I'm wondering, like, is technology the only answer to it? Because, uh, well, from my point of view, I can also think of education. Yeah, you, you are definitely right. Um, technology itself cannot be the answer for everything. And I, I do believe that we are all aware of it. But it means that combining technology with, for example, financial independence, with uh, ownership, with uh, appropriate technology acceptance um, process, with equal access to education, can help in the empowerment and for poverty alleviation in the process. Today we talk about the UN targets concerning the SDG 1 No Poverty, but also about the ways how to address poverty, and we shortly reflected on what it means to live in extreme poverty. Well, it's also important to know that our intention was not to solve poverty, but our aim was to raise awareness about the topic and the urgency to take actions, and also reflect on our small contribution as a humanitarian engineering group at the University of Twente. 
So see you next time in our regular episode.